We're called, uh, what I'm preaching on this morning, Church on the Run. And um, we are focusing on the passage I've read out, which is all about Jonah's foolish response to the amazing privilege and call of God that comes upon him as a messenger. It's not a great response, is it? It's a really disappointing response to what God says. And, you know, as I've looked at this, I've kind of wrestled with it in a way, because in many ways I think that the book of Jonah is, you know, it's a handbook in how not to do it. It's really hard to find positive modelling of, you know, heartfelt mission from the character of Jonah. And in a way I feel sorry for Jonah. You know, we all make mistakes, our responses to God and our obedience to him and our walk with him is never perfect. You know, we're in many ways, each of us, you know, dysfunctional, we have hang-ups, we're a mess at times, Uh, we don't live up to the things that we believe and that we aspire to, but much of that actually is kept private. For Jonah, his messing up the call of God is published, you know, to all generations Uh, to to all cultures through the scriptures. And so I feel in many ways, you know, quite sorry for for Jonah. His dreadful responses are recorded and are preached on to the whole earth and to every generation. And so it really is quite hard to find any redeeming features in terms of the character of Jonah. He's stubborn, he's sullen, he's disobedient, and even, as we'll see, when he eventually does get his act together and respond, and Nineveh responds by the grace of God to his message, he just goes all sour and self-centred. He's not a good advert for what it means to be on a mission or to be a missionary. And yet, as I've thought about that, reflected about that, I think what the story serves to highlight in the light of Jonah's miserable response is actually the sheer passion and and commitment of God himself to reaching a world that lives without reference to him. What we find through the story is that God has a passionate concern and a passionate commitment to reaching those that have not yet heard the good news of who he is and what he's done for them. And so the mission that comes through the story doesn't depend on Jonah, it depends on God and his commitment. And I think there is clearly a very clear challenge to us through the story of Jonah. I think in some way the painful reality is as we delve into his character and we consider his shortcomings, you know, in many ways we're looking into a mirror and we see our own reluctance to reach out at times. We see our own aversion at times to simple steps of obedience, our own preoccupation maybe with personal comfort over and above the privilege of partnership with God on the mission that he's called us to. And yet, despite that challenge, I don't believe we should be left feeling condemned or demotivated. I believe the story of Jonah is inspiring because it teaches us that God can do through us what we're incapable of doing in ourselves. He can deal with that reluctance. He can get us to the place that he's called us to be. And he can move through us to do great things. 
And so I think the, the, the story sh- just serves to remind us of the pr- sheer privilege of what we're called to do. And of course, it serves also to highlight Jesus. You know, Jesus stands in stark contrast to Jonah. Jesus, who in his stunning obedience and responsiveness to the call of God on him, came from heaven to earth to provide a way for us to know God. So we're going to look at the whole issue of mission through Jonah and hopefully um, see above and beyond everything else just the grace of God as he moves on us and as he's at work amongst us to get us to the place that he's called us to be so that this world that we live in might be reached for him. Now before we look into it, I just want to define what we mean by mission. Because I know the word mission, it conjures up all kinds of images and associations in our minds and many of them actually are often not very helpful. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word mission. Often we think immediately of something that's uh, overseas and so we think of a geographical journey and distance. Um, We often think of something that's very remote and uh, exclusive. We think maybe of jungles and mosquitoes and strange, you know, eccentric individuals living in those kind of situations. That is not what we're talking about when we're talking about mission. Neither are we talking about just putting on events for the unchurched. When we're talking about embracing God's mission, we're talking about embracing Essentially, a lifestyle that gravitates around getting to know and serve those who have not yet heard the good news of what God has done for them. We're not talking about crossing the ocean necessarily, although some will cross oceans. We're talking about crossing the street. We're talking about not jungles and mosquitoes, but the school gates and street barbecues and book clubs and our day-to-day interaction with a world that lives without reference to God. We're not also talking about taking people from zero to 60 in 2.6 seconds. I think Adrian Holloway was very helpful in this regard. We're talking about actually just being a very simple part of a process in the lives of those that we're building relationship with. So when I talk about mission, that's what we're looking at. So let's look into this. I want to talk about three things this morning. I want to look at the responsibility of the church the reluctance of the missionary and the remedy of God. Let's look first then at the responsibility of the church. If Nineveh is a picture of a society that lives without reference to God and the message of his grace, then Jonah, as a called messenger, is a picture for us of who we're called to be as the church in the context of that culture. You see, there are three main players, aren't there, in the book of Jonah. There's God, there's the people of Nineveh, and there's Jonah. And Jonah is the key link in the chain between God and the people of Nineveh. In some mysterious way, God hangs his purposes for this city and this community on the sometimes stubborn shoulders of this flawed individual Jonah that we read about. Jonah is a key link in the chain. And the drama of the story is this contest between God and Jonah as he foolishly thinks he can resist the call of God and go in a different direction. But the mystery of the story is that the destiny of the city depends on whether Jonah gets his act together 
and embraces the mission that God's called him to. It's only, of course, when Jonah eventually turns around and embraces that mission and that responsibility that then the floodgates of God open up over the city of Nineveh and hearts are moved and God acts in a dramatic, remarkable way within the city. So the story of Jonah teaches us, first of all, that we have a crucial part to play in the destiny of our city and the communities that God has placed us in. We are a key link in the chain. In some sense, the destiny of our city and the communities that we live in depends on whether we in our day get our act together and participate in the mission that God's called us to participate in. It's important, I think, that we feel the weight and the privilege of that key call that's upon each one of our lives. You and I are a key link in the chain in terms of the destiny of our city and the communities that we live in. In spite of all our flaws, we have a responsibility that God has placed upon us as his church. And that's the way it's always been. Jesus, of course, in the Gospels, invested the future of the kingdom and the destiny of nations into the hands of a few converted villagers who were full of flaws. You see, the Gospels, you know, there's no Photoshop in the Gospels, is there? There's no airbrushing of the disciples. They are very flawed individuals. They are, in some occasions, what we might even call dysfunctional. They are frustratingly dull at times. I mean, Jesus turns to them on one occasion and starts talking about legalism. He's trying to pass on some important, key, spiritual truth. And they look at one another and they think he's talking about the kind of bread that they've made their sandwiches with. They just did not get it. They were frustratingly dull at times. We read of how, on one occasion, as they're approaching Jerusalem, that they're just arguing with one another about who's the greatest. We read of how James and John, as Jesus has just told them about the horrible way he's going to be executed, pull their mum into the situation and they start to appeal to Jesus to give them the key cabinet places in his future government. I mean, it does not look promising. This is hours, days from the cross itself and they are still on a personal agenda for influence and power and authority, a very self-centred agenda. It's unbelievable, really. And then we have Peter bragging to Jesus about he'll never deny him. The disciples all, yeah, nodding and agreeing, yeah, we're, we're there, we'll, we'll not do that. And then hours later, when the heat's turned up, they run like scared rabbits. And then as Jesus is crucified and laid in the tomb, we find them cowering behind locked doors in some corner of Jerusalem. Peter throwing in the towel and going back to the business of fishing. It's not looking very promising. And we think Jesus spent all night in prayer selecting this bunch of disciples. Begin to wonder even whether he's got it badly wrong. But it's into the hands of this mixed bunch of followers that Jesus entrusts the responsibility of his ongoing mission. 
He hands over the keys of the kingdom to them. He places on their shoulders the task of reaching their world for the glory of God. And the reality is every subsequent generation of Christians receives the same task and the same responsibility. We're just as ordinary and as flawed and as dysfunctional as they were. But we've also received that high privilege and calling as God's people to be those that carry on the mission of God in our day and in our generation. You see, there is no plan B. There is no plan B. Plan A is here in this building this morning. Plan A is sitting next to you on that seat. And there's no plan B. Paul talks in Ephesians of the eternal purpose of God that through the church, that's you and me, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the powers and principalities. In Romans 10, he breaks it down to an individual level. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. You know, we may be very flawed. We may have our hang-ups and weaknesses, but the Bible says we've got beautiful feet. And God has called us to take a beautiful message of good news to the world that we live in and to the communities that are around us. We are plan A. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 5 to speak of how we've been given the ministry of reconciliation and how through us, God makes his own appeal. Jesus, of course, says that we're the salt and the light of the world. And he urges us not to lose our saltiness or hide our light. The implication is if we don't embrace our mission to be salty, the communities around us start to rot and stink. That if we hide our light under a bowl and become some kind of private members club, the world around us is restricted to nothing but darkness. So that's our privilege and our responsibility. Jonah received a high calling. You and I have a high calling. Second thing I want to look at is the reluctance of the missionary. You know, this can sound very stirring and we can feel at one and the same time quite humbled and at the same time very privileged that we have a part to play in God's plan. But the next two words that we find in verse 3 are what Artie Kendall describes as the saddest two words in the whole book. They're these words, but Jonah. They're repeated in verse 5 where it says, but Jonah, and then it describes how he's just fast asleep in his cabin on the ship to Tarshish. Because rather than embracing this call and responding to God's privileged mission, Jonah runs in the opposite direction. And he falls fast asleep in his cabin en route to Tarshish. God says go, and Jonah says no. And that's the story that we've read this morning. Jonah, having received the call, packs his bags and he runs in the opposite direction. Nineveh was um, northeast of uh, Jonah's hometown and Joppa was southwest. Tarshish is um, difficult, a difficult place to identify. People don't agree really on where it was. 
Um, some people believe it was Tarsessus, which was a port on the coast of Spain in the Mediterranean. Others think it just described a very remote region or that it was used in a way that our phrase Timbuktu is used today, just to, just to describe somewhere that is as far away as can possibly be true. That's where Jonah went when God said, go to Nineveh. That's where he was heading. He'd received a call to participate in mission in Nineveh, and he books himself into a Mediterranean cruise and falls fast asleep in the comfort of his cabin. Now, we can feel the outrage of that. I mean, in the light of some of the things that Steve was sharing last night about the nature of this God who calls Jonah, we think, what on earth are you doing, Jonah? I mean, he's got the history and the theology of the people of God. He understands who God is. He knows that this is the God who, you know, delivered Israel from Egypt, who parted the Red Sea. And yet he runs from the call of God. Historically, though, the reality is that the church has failed to embrace God's mission and has often preoccupied itself with other agendas. It's run a different race and it's headed in a different direction. And at other times, we know through church history, the church has been fast asleep and oblivious to an, a lost world that exists all around it. We think of William Carey, who's, who's one of my personal heroes, as the father of modern missions. But when William Carey stood up as a young man in a pastor's conference, having become convinced of the responsibility of the church to take the gospel to the nations and to propose a case for embracing that responsibility and doing something practical about it, the other pastors turned to him and said the following words, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. Now we can find it really hard to understand how those in church leadership can get to that place, misplaced place of bad theology. But actually, I think the reality is that by and large, the church in our own culture is pretty disengaged and uninvolved. It's particularly disengaged from inner cities and areas lower down the social scale, which is interesting in the light of the fact that Jonah is called to a city. Now, we know it's changing, and I believe we're part of that change, and I think there's much to be encouraged by. Uh, the DVD that we saw last week, just about the small work that New Frontiers is doing, reflects the way in which we are increasingly getting involved and engaged. But there is still a huge challenge to us when it comes to embracing God's mission and embedding ourselves into the communities around us. That's our responsibility. Let's look at some of the issues for Jonah then that might have been like roadblocks. First thing I think that, um, that was a roadblock for Jonah was pride and prejudice. Jonah was racially prejudiced towards the Ninevites. One clear reason for heading for Tarshish when God said Nineveh was he simply did not like the Ninevites. That prejudice was probably a result of a misplaced understanding of his own national identity, a kind of distorted national pride and superiority. It was possibly a result of the fact that the Assyrians had been a superior 
um, empire. And so Jonah's got this huge chip on his shoulder about this other race, the, the, the Ninevites. But he certainly has a very strong emotional response to the word Nineveh and to the thought of reaching out to Ninevites. Such a strong emotional response that he just gets his suitcase and he heads for Tarshish. You know, our own reluctance at times may be rooted in similar issues. I'm sure for all of us, myself included, the mention of certain places and phrases and names evokes a negative emotional response on a human level. Now, I'm not saying that the last place on earth that you want to go is the one place God's going to call you to. Okay, I don't believe that at all. The Bible says God works in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. But we do need to be careful that our hearts are free from prejudice. Let me just try out a few place names and phrases on you this morning. The North of England. Hallelujah. The Midlands. The South West. Wales. Brixton. Bradford. Manchester, Battery Hill, we should all be cheering, Highcliffe, try this one, the homeless, the elderly, young offenders, prison ministry, let me try one last one, Beastly Eastly, okay, that's a bit naughty, I couldn't resist that. We all have negative emotional responses to the thought of certain places. And if we're going to embrace and participate in what God's called us to, at every level and in every corner, just of our own city, let alone beyond the walls of our city, we must be free from any sense of prejudice and pride. Another roadblock for Jonah may have been familiarity. You see, Nineveh was a long way from Gath-Hepha, which was Jonah's hometown. And it was very different. Gath-Hepha was a nice village in the countryside. Nineveh was a busy metropolis. In Gath-Hepha, everyone knew everyone. They spoke the same language, they wore the same clothes, they ate the same food, they had the same shared history. They ate the same things, they believed in the same things. There was a familiarity about Jonah's hometown. But Nineveh? Have you seen the things they eat in Nineveh? The way they dress? That weird language they speak? They're foreigners. And so this issue of familiarity, I'm sure, played a part in Jonah's own flawed response to participating in God's mission. The fact is that embracing God's mission always involves stepping out of our comfort zone in some way or other. As we go, of course, we know God provides and we find that what we thought was lost is returned with interest. But there is always a challenge to step out of the comfort zone. It may be as simple as talking to someone that you wouldn't naturally talk to. It may be doing something and being involved in something that is a bit out of your comfort zone, like the soup service on a Thursday evening. It may be multiplying your community group and therefore not seeing the same familiar faces week in, week out. 
It may be a house move to somewhere you wouldn't naturally choose to go in order to serve the kingdom in that place. It may be even more significant. It may be a case of totally uprooting and moving to a very unfamiliar place with very unfamiliar customs and a different language altogether. We must be careful that our over-familiarity with our own culture doesn't impede our, our ability to respond to God's call and God's mission. One other thing I want to mention that was a roadblock is a settled role. I think the call to Nineveh represented something of a change of role for Jonah. I don't know if you realise this, but Jonah was actually already a recognised prophet within the context of Israel. In, in 2 Kings 14, we read one of his prophecies of restoration, and I think one of the reasons he's there in the Minor Prophets is he was a recognised prophet who had a recognised ministry within the context of the community of God's people. He heard from God and he brought words to God's people. He encouraged them. He brought revelation to them. That's what he did. That was his role. That was his identity. And then God speaks to him and says, Now, Jonah, I want you to leave the context of that community and I want you to go to Nineveh and do what you do in Nineveh. Bring my word to the Ninevites. Guess what? He was not happy at all about that. This call to Nineveh meant a significant change of role for him. Embracing God's mission, I think, as his people, involves moving out beyond the four walls of the buildings that we live in and taking the good news that we sing about and reflect on and pray out and enjoy hearing about here on a Sunday morning to the communities that are unchurched that we live in. Mission is not about expecting the community to come into us, is it? It's about us embracing the call to go to them. And that's a challenge. I think just like Jonah, it's possible for us to become so settled in our, and involved in our, with our own place and our own role and identity within the community of the church that we either have no time to get involved in the community out there or we find the idea of getting involved in the community out there very uncomfortable. And it's possible for us, I think, especially men, to find our sense of identity and even our worth at times in our role within the community of the church. But embracing mission means change. Jonah was happy with his identity as a prophet amongst the people of God. But he wasn't happy about thinking of himself as a missionary to an unreached people group. To effectively serve God's mission, we must understand our identity is as missionaries. Every single one of us. And the story of Jonah is something of a warning not to become so settled or immersed in our role within the community of God that we're unable to fulfil our role as missionaries to the lost communities that are all around us. That was another roadblock in the life of Jonah. Let's just look finally at the remedy of God then. What does God do in this situation? We've looked at the phrase, but Jonah, and we've considered his response to God's call and his reluctance to embrace God's mission. But there's another verse in verse 4, another phrase, and it's this, but the Lord. Okay, we have but Jonah, and then but the Lord. 
The amazing thing is, and this is what I want us to take away this morning, that God is not limited in any way to Jonah's failure to embrace God's mission. The amazing thing is that God sticks with Jonah. He does not give up on him. You know, I think if it was you or I, we'd be inclined to do something of an Alan Sugar on Jonah. I mean, he's heard the call to go, he's headed in the opposite direction, he's packed his bags, he's fleeing from the presence of God. We'd be inclined to say, Jonah, you're fired! But that's not what we hear. What we hear is, but the Lord. In other words, God responds to Jonah's failure to embrace God's mission by coming to him in a storm. It wasn't the kind of storm that could be ignored or weathered. I don't know if any of you have seen the film The Perfect Storm, uh, which came out in the year 2000, a George Clooney film. Well, it tells the real-life story of a fishing vessel called the Andrea Gale, which in 91 left the port of Massachusetts, America. And two weeks later, whilst it was on the ocean, a weather event that had never before ever been recorded happened. Two massive, powerful weather fronts and a hurricane converged at the same time over the ocean to create an immense storm that begins to pummel this boat with 40-foot waves. And as the film unfolds, I'm sorry, I'm spoiling it for you if you've not yet seen it, they eventually turn to face the storm and as they do that, this huge rogue wave kind of bears down on them and the ship is carried up into this massive wave and is lost without any survivors. Well, Jonah faced that kind of storm, a a life-threatening situation. Even the experienced sailors here recognised they were going down. Jonah is on the run, and he's fast asleep, and then all of a sudden he's rudely awakened, and he's in the middle of a tempest. But he recognises that this is not a random event. The sailors call it an evil event, but Jonah sees that somehow behind the perfect storm is a perfect God who has a perfect plan and is in perfect control of all things. And in the face of the storm, Jonah has his high moment, I think, in the book when he realises that his escape plan is futile and he surrenders himself to God for the sake of saving those that are on the boat with him. Now, I think this is all wonderfully reassuring. It means God is absolutely committed to fulfilling his purpose in us and through us. It may mean a perfect storm at times. It may mean at times that God whips up the waves in our lives. But that's all intended to bring us to our senses. It's not mean, it's loving discipline. And the storm here was not sent out of cruelty to eliminate Jonah. It was sent out of love to wake him up and get him back on track. It's not punishment for past sin. It's a preparation for the future that God has for him. And it's a means of getting him in the right place for that future. And again and again in scripture we find God working in this way. Hebrews 12 verse 5 to 8 says, My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, 
and he chastises every son he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So we need to be deeply reassured that although the ride may be uncomfortable at times, God is with us. God doesn't resign us to the scrap heap. He doesn't disinherit us. He may whip up a storm, but he will get us to the place that he's called us to be. When the church is fast asleep or running in the opposite direction, God is absolutely committed to waking her up. He does not give up on his church. He may engineer a storm from time to time, but he's fully committed to getting us to the place where he's called us to be. We have amazing promises over us as a church, don't we, locally? Well, God will get us to that place where we're beginning to see some of the fruit of the things that we've prayed for down through the years, the things that we've longed for, the things that we believe in our hearts that God himself has promised us. He is absolutely committed to us. Let me conclude then by asking, are you facing something of a storm? It may be you're here this morning and you identify something with Jonah. It may be that you are not once where you were with God. Interestingly, the phrase that Jonah that's used is that Jonah ran away from the presence of the Lord. The phrase there means the face of God. In other words, Jonah knew he couldn't get to somewhere where God wasn't, but he ran away from God's manifest sense of, of his presence and his favour and his face upon him. You may be here this morning, you may have made a commitment 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, but you know that you've done something of a Jonah. You know God's there and that there's no way you can go that's outside of the boundaries of his love. But you know, in terms of the intimacy and the face of God and the presence of God in your life, you, you've, run from, you've ran from that for one reason or another. There may even be a calling on your life. You may even have you know, prophecies that were spoken over you in a book somewhere. There's a huge calling. Something of a destiny that you know you have in God. I want to appeal to you this morning. We're going to have, in a few moments, an opportunity to respond with a song, to do what Jonah did, to wake up and to surrender yourself to God. It may be that you have responded, but God's calling you to embrace his mission in a fresh way. And I want to give you an opportunity. It may be a very significant thing, like going overseas. It may simply be getting more involved in your neighbourhood and on your street and as a community group into the lives of those that are around you. I want to encourage you to respond to that. It may be that you have literally woken up in the middle of a storm and God simply wants to assure you that he is perfectly in control and that he has a perfect plan that he's working out through that.